Good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here starting your Sunday off with us. It's a hot one out there, uh, and there's still air conditioning happening in here, which is a good thing. So uh, may- maybe that's why you came. Uh, maybe someone... <laughs> Maybe someone drug you today. Uh, maybe you're just pumped on this series that we're in. Uh, maybe you've been out and about and traveling and you're back. Whatever it is that brings you here, welcome. I believe that God, the God of the universe, uh, actually has something to say to you today. So uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Hillary, my boys Jack and Henry and I have been the last uh, couple of weeks, three weeks-ish almost, um, on a study break, and we spent uh, most of that time up in Washington State, which is a gift because Hillary is from there, and so part of the deal with moving her whole life down here was that we would go back up there periodically, and so in the summers, we do that, and a study break for me is about resting and kind of uh, unplugging and being able to listen to God uh, because it's difficult to listen when you're talking all the time, when you're preparing messages and in the rhythm we are. So it was just this great time of refreshing, listening, preparing for what God has for us in this new season of life. I wanted to show you a couple of pictures from this uh, study break from Hillary's family place. This is uh, the cabin up in Lake Bay, Washington, which is near Gig Harbor, where Hillary's whole family is from, like the Croatian mafia. They just hang out there and do their thing. Her grandfather was like the mayor and the first uh, police officer and all kinds of stuff like that. So uh, her mom passed away six years ago, which was devastating, but her mom left to Hillary and her brother this little cabin. So it's very simple, but it's great, and it's right there on the water. That's the Puget Sound. Olympic Mountains are back over there to the right. You can kind of see the start of them. Uh, there's kayaks there. So little Jack and I, we went out in a kayak, and uh, he, he held on to the oars. Do you call them oars? Is that right? Yeah, oars. Uh, oh, he held on to the oars, and, uh, and, and he liked to say, I drive the boat. I drive the boat. And I was like, no, 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 no. I'm definitely driving the boat, and you're making it harder, you know? Uh, but, but it was fun, and we had a good time doing that. And then this is one more picture of him playing with some seaweed there. Uh, because it's the, like one of those tide things, like the tide goes out and comes in. When it's out, there's lots of sandy beach, and so he's out there screwing around. We had a good time, but we're grateful to be home. Uh, and I want to tell you this. When we got home, uh, flew in, landed, got picked up, straight home, put down the bags, and uh, get, get a glass of water, sit down, and there's a knock at the door, and it is the executive pastor of Mariners, uh, the network of churches, and a former elder who's been helping us negotiate for the theater that we've been in the process of buying, and uh, the theater at Beach and Warner. And so uh, I think to myself, uh, they either are dropping off the keys or, or there's something bad that they're about to tell me. And so uh, we sit down and we're talking, and uh, right off the bat, they just say, okay, here's there's the situation that's unfolded. Uh, the owner of the theater. It's not Regency. Regency is occupying it. They do not own it. They're losing money, and so they're going away. Uh, But the owner of the theater that wants to sell to us uh, ran into some trouble. We had already secured a loan from farmers and merchants. We we had the paperwork drawn up. We figured out how to to, kind of get on the same page with the parking structure, all that. We're good. We're good. Uh, They go to their lender, because they owe a lot of money on that whole corner. They own that whole corner. And they have a large loan on that whole corner. And uh, their lender says, sorry, 
we're not going to let you sell a piece of this while you owe us money on the whole. And uh, so the, and then the owner comes back with his tail between his legs to us and be like, oh my gosh, uh, so sorry, we can't sell it. Uh, so when I got that news, I was very disappointed and angry for like that entire rest of the day, night, morning. Uh, and, uh, and then I had a complete shift and change of heart. When I woke up the next day, prayed, talked with Hillary, and I thought about the realities of it. And here are the realities of it. We're still going to lease it. It's all the same, except it's a lease instead of a purchase. We're still going to be in it, maybe even sooner. We're still going to raise the exact same amount of money because we have to do the exact same amount of work inside the theater to make it accommodate us. And now in this scenario, we just don't have any debt. So we're going to do a lease. We're going to be in that theater. It'll be some kind of a great, you know, 10 year plus with these add-ons or whatever we want to do. And, uh, and we are choosing to believe that God is actually saving us from something. When it's something like that that's so far out of our control that just happens at the 11th hour when you're so close, you just have no choice but to say, maybe God is preventing something worse. Maybe God knows something that we don't know. Or maybe one day we're just going to buy the whole corner. You know, I don't, I don't know <laughs> what that's going to look like. Uh, but I am not manufacturing enthusiasm or optimism for you. I actually believe that this is a great scenario. And so we're just going forward like this. And I will continue to give you uh, full transparency in this process of, you know, the timetables as we finish this lease negotiation and get that done. When we're in there, we're going to start doing walkthroughs. You can, we'll start doing visuals so you can begin to see what the insides are going to look like plan to you know, take down this wall and do kids over here, and it's going to be awesome, and it's all the same. Just not going to own the thing. We're going to lease it for the time being. So, uh, but as I am genuinely excited and you know, fine with that scenario, I was disappointed and frustrated for about 24 hours. And in that disappointment and frustration, I decided that I wanted to do a message today about disappointment and what to do with disappointment. Uh, and, and so it's really, really critical because all of us experience disappointment on a regular basis. It's a part of life. Uh, some of you are disappointed uh, right now uh, with any number of things in your life. Some of you have gone beyond disappointment to devastation, and there's really difficult circumstances that you're walking through. Others of you don't know it yet, but there's disappointment coming right around the curve. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning. Uh, from one of the best movies ever made, The Princess Bride, there's this famous line, there's this famous line uh, when the man in black is sword fighting with Inigo Montoya. If you don't know The Princess Bride, I'm disappointed uh, <laughs> that that is true, and you should just go rent it. And I'm feeling old because some of you I know don't. Um, but they're, they're sword fighting, right? And the Inigo Montoya says, tell me who you are, essentially, right? Because the man in black is wearing a mask. And he's like, no. And they keep fighting. And he's like, I must know. Tell me who you are. And the man in black says, get used to disappointment. And Inigo Montoya, who now plays Saul in Homeland, uh, says, okay. And they just keep fighting, right? And that's what a lot of us have done. That's what a lot of us do. We've just gotten used to disappointment. 
We've just gotten used to it. Uh, it's just normal. It's just part of life. And for some of us, we've gotten numb to disappointment. We don't let ourselves feel very much. And others of us, we hate disappointment so much that we have lowered our expectations to the ground. And so that we don't hope for anything, we don't count on anybody, we don't make big plans, we just, we just expect way down here so as not to be disappointed because it's painful and we don't want it as much as we can manage it. Now here are the three ways that we tend to be disappointed. One is circumstances. Disappointed in our circumstances, when things are just not going our way, this is not the way I planned it to be, it's not working out, I had these kind of intentions and this is not what I see in front of me. We get disappointed in others because people let us down. I don't know if you've noticed that, uh, but, but people will let you down. Even the people closest to you that you think are the ones who ultimately should not let you down, they will because we're all broken humans who don't even understand what we're doing sometimes, and, and we will let each other down. And then in that category of others, I'm also including God. Because after all, if he's the God of the universe, sovereign over all things, all powerful, can do anything, he allowed this, right? So it's easy. I can blame you. You could have prevented this circumstance. Why did you bring me to this person? Why did you allow this thing to happen? And it's really easy to blame God for our disappointment. And then the third and final thing uh, is self. We can become disappointed in ourselves. That's what we'll talk about at the end. But I want you to know that I have been uh, thoroughly and repeatedly disappointed in all three of these areas. And I've found that disappointment isn't bad. It's actually part of the journey. In fact, disappointment is part of the journey forward. There are things that you cannot understand. There are places you cannot go. There are, there are dimensions of growth that you cannot experience without disappointment. It's part of it. It's like falling forward. There are, are different ways of personal growth and maturity that seem to only be experienced through disappointment. So disappointment is not the enemy. However, there's a path from disappointment that is the enemy. There's a path that leads to destructiveness that we want to avoid. And the path goes like this. We experience disappointment, which leads us to discouragement, which leads to disillusionment, thinking, you know, this is fake. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm just so disillusioned with this. I'm out of here kind of a thing, which leads to depression like a wet blanket just hanging over your shoulders. You kind of have just kind of this subpar experience of life and just, just don't feel good about much and ultimately to defeat when you give up hope. That's the path that disappointment wants to take you. That's the gravitational pull when you experience setbacks, when you experience pain, when people let you down, when circumstances are difficult, you feel disappointed, and there's this tendency to want to go down this path. But you don't have to. 
What we're going to talk about today is an alternative. And I want to use a story that's a crazy story from the Old Testament part of the Bible. I want to tell you the story of a man named Job. Now, Job is 42 chapters long. So I thought I'd read them all for you here this morning. And uh, we'll bring in lunch. No, I'm going, to, I'm going to just read a few verses and summarize the whole. But it's an important story that I want you to get. Let's start off chapter 1. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. Now, as you read that first verse, it reads a little bit storybooky, right? There once was a man named Job, and it was this obscure little two-letter town, you know, whatever. (laughs) It reads a little storybooky. But here's the thing. Scholars, historians, people, they actually believe that that, that Job existed, that he was a real guy, and that a lot of this, that this story is very real. It's referred to two times in the Bible, pointing back to, in the New Testament, pointing back to Job. So he's, he's real. He's a guy. The experience he's going to have that we're going to read about is very real. And yet scholars also believe that the manner in which it's written with prose, with, with lots of dialogue, there is kind of a storytelling element to it. And maybe there's a little bit of me- metaphor woven through. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll peek at that. I'll tell you a little bit what it means, but don't worry about it. The point is, that he's, this first verse sets him up to be a really good man, right? He's a good man, full of integrity. So you have this hint, this suspicion that maybe something bad's coming. Next verse. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. So let's look at this for a second. I want, to, I want to tell you why this is written in this manner, why it's laid out like this. Because Job had seven sons and three daughters. At the very start of this verse, it suggests that this is what's most important, right? And you would feel the same way if you have kids. Like, this is, this is what's most important to me. This is my prized possession. Not that people are possessions, but you know what I mean. This is what I'm most proud of. And then from there, it's 7,000 sheep. Now, sheep were the most impressive of animals because they had food, they could produce food and clothing. Even back then, they would use the wool for their clothing. So if you had sheep, you were, you were doing good. It doesn't talk about land here because early on in human existence, there was lots of land, not as many people. So you could have land. But to have animals, and, and this many animals under your care was, was pretty impressive. So 7,000 sheep is a good thing. It's the most valuable thing, and that's what he's got the most of. So people are paying attention to this like, dang. And then you get to 3,000 camels, and immediately they're thinking, Job's a baller. This guy, has, this guy has what people want because camels are the beasts of burden, right? They can carry stuff like donkeys. They can, they're big and they can carry a lot more. And he's got 3,000 of them. And then 500 teams of oxen, which are the kind of the next tier down in awesomeness because they can plow and they can work the fields. And then finally you have the donkeys who can also carry stuff and you're pumped on 500 donkeys, right? So then servants to manage all this incredibly huge estate. And so Job is the wealthiest dude around. 
<clears throat> what follows this description of Job's possessions and his status is this really strange dialogue where in the invisible realm that we can't see right here, that's often referred to as heaven, there's this God and he's hanging out and then his enemy that's referred to as Satan, perhaps you've heard of him, comes to like to talk to him. And, he's, and Satan has been out doing bad stuff and kind of cruising, looking for people to mess with. And he comes to God and he wants to antagonize. And God's like, well, there's my dude Job. He's a good man. He's, he's got it together. He follows me faithfully. And Satan provokes. And he's like, well, of course he does. You've like protected him. He's got all this stuff. And, he, and he, you've made his life cush. And like, that's no big deal. Anyone would follow you when you do all that, right? All all this kind of blessing. And so in this strange, mysterious dialogue that we don't know if it's metaphorical or actually the way it goes down, God allows his enemy to torment Job, which raises all kinds of questions, doesn't it? Questions that I'm not going to answer. Because they're questions to answers that either won't satisfy you or that we can't fully understand and know right now. The question is not like, oh, why would God allow that? Or why is there evil in the world? These are questions too big for our minds right now. But what you should be asking is, why would God preserve this text? Why would he want this included in the Bible? It's very strange. And as you're going to see, it's quite depressing. Why would God preserve this for us to read? Perhaps, perhaps, it's so that we understand that as mysterious as it is, and as small as our brains are and experiences are in our little slice of human history, we can't comprehend it, but, and yet, disappointment, devastation, these things in life, they're part of life, that they happen. God could prevent everything, and for some reason, he doesn't. He prevents some things, he doesn't prevent everything, and we don't get that. And yet, we also have to recognize that there's more than what we see, and there's more than what we can sense with our senses. So we go on. One day, Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house. A messenger arrived at Job's home with the news. Our oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside him. Uh, were feeding beside them. When the Sabians raided us, they stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Bad news. And it gets worse. Verse 16. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived to Job with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. What's the fire of God? Uh, we don't know for sure. There's people that have theories about that, and I'm sure that we can probably uh, figure something like that out. But here's the point. It's this guy's interpretation of an event. And when he sees fire appear out of nowhere and burn up a bunch of Job's property, his animals... He must be thinking to himself, God's getting you, dude. 
Like you got it all looking good on the outside, but this fire from God just came down and burned up a bunch of your stuff. I hate to report that to you, but now I think, I, I secretly think that you have hidden sin and that God is getting you. We do that. You've had people do that to you, right? Do you see what that person's going through? Well, it serves them right. God's really getting them for the X, Y, and Z that they've done. Or you see what happened to him? He must have secrets. Like he looks all pretty. She looks all pretty on the outside, but God's given them what they deserve. They have, they have stuff going on. We have this human tendency, don't we? When there's something that we don't understand and explain, can't explain, that fire just all of a sudden consumes this thing, well, it's unexplainable. There's not like any junior high kids unsupervised around here, so it must be God having his way. You're paying for something. We do that. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And at this point, Job is looking around for hidden cameras. He, he sees a bird, but now he thinks it's probably a drone, right? And, and they're trying to get me, and he's looking at this messenger guy, and he's looking for makeup and thinking, is this Johnny Knoxville, and is this a bad movie, and, and are, is something going to jump out at me and say, oh, surprise, we're just kidding, you know, it's your birthday party, or whatever. Like, like what could possibly be happening right now? All of these things just happen in a matter of moments, and this is my life all of a sudden? and it gets even more unthinkable. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. Maybe kind of like a tornado. The house collapsed and all your children are dead. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. So he loses all of his possessions, and then he loses his kids. I mean, that's the worst kind of pain a person can experience. From what I'm told, I haven't experienced that. People close to me have. People in here have. A woman told me on the patio after the last service that she has. There is no greater pain than that. And so we're looking at a man who has just lost everything of value to him, and then someone comes and tells him that his kids are dead. And, oh, by the way, I survived to tell you. I mean, think about that. The pain. Next verse says, Job stood up, tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. What? Who does that? Who can do that? When you have just experienced like the worst day in recorded history that's ever happened to anyone, and yet you finish the day saying, Praise God? Now, what's important, I think, to point out is that what we read right there probably didn't happen just like in a five-minute span. So when he tears his robe, he's tearing his robe 
uh, in, in mourning of all the things that he had lost, the animals, the servants, all those kinds of things. When he shaves his head, that's like the ultimate mourning, and he's mourning his children. And it's not something that you just do in the moment. They didn't plug in little clippers and go buzz. He had to, like, he had to go find a servant and do some stuff and, and shave the head. So it took a little bit of time. I am guessing that this report happened sometime in the middle of the day, and he went and he tore his robe, and he found someone and shaved his head, and that took the afternoon. And all the while, he's weeping buckets of tears, and he's crying out, and he's miserable, and he throws up a couple of times, and he can't eat, and he's trembling, and he's trying to walk, and he falls to his knees, and then he just crawls, and he finally just falls on his face at the end of the day, and with nothing else to say, no more tears to cry, and he just says, I came naked, from my mother's womb, and I'll be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had. I'm not entitled to anything. And now he has allowed it to be taken away. Praise be God. Because what else do you say? The saga continues. gets even a little bit worse as this enemy of God comes and he afflicts him with even more pain, this time physical. Boils break out all over Job's skin. I've never had boils, but I hear they're tough. He can't lay down comfortably. He can't sit comfortably. He can't do anything. He's just in physical, emotional agony. They hurt so bad, the Bible says, that he breaks clay and he scrapes off his skin because that hurts less. And now he's got physical scars to remind him of the most painful, emotional, spiritual things that he's ever experienced. And he must be asking the big questions, right? Why, for instance, why have I sinned? Why are you punishing me? Do you hate me? Have you forgotten me? Have you ever been there? Why? You could have prevented this. You could have fixed this. It could be different. Why? The next 40 chapters are all about the why. And he's wrestling and he's praying and he's journaling and he's arguing with friends who are trying to come and support him, sort of, but also call him out and challenge his theology. And none of that helps. Some of you know. When you're in pain and it feels like you're at your low, you don't need someone coming and telling you a bumper sticker, you know, Bible verse or something. There's nothing. The words cannot help. It's not fixing. It's ju it just hurts. 40 chapters, you can read them, about his pain. Sliding from disappointment with devastation to discouragement, disillusionment with this life, depression, despair. Wishing that he didn't even exist. I cursed the day that I was born, he yelled. 
And then, at the end, God speaks to him. And I'm going to paraphrase it. Essentially, God says, I hear you. I understand you. But you don't understand me. And there's a bigger story here. And there's a lot more beyond just what you see and feel. And you don't understand how God's mind works. And you wrestling and arguing with your buddies can't figure it out on your own. You can't understand what it was like for me to speak all of existence into place. You weren't there when I breathed life into your ancestors' bodies. You don't know what it looked like behind the scenes for me to bless your life the way I have. You don't know how many days are still in front of you and what's still to come for you. Why don't you just trust me and let me be God? And then God gives Job double everything he had before. Chapter 42 says, So the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life, even more than in the beginning. For now he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, 1,000 female donkeys, seven more sons, three more daughters. Job lived 140 years after that, living to see four generations of his children and grandchildren. Then he died, an old man who had lived a long and full life. Nowhere in Scripture does God say that life will be easy. Nowhere in Scripture does he say that it will be fair. But time and time and time again, God says, but I am good. Will you trust me? Despite the circumstances, Jesus said, the thief is the one who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Not have it to the easy, but have it to the full. Job, will you trust that despite the circumstances and what you're going through, that I still have goodness and fullness and fulfillment of life for you? Why do I tell you this story of Job? It's depressing. Uh, I tell you because somewhere on this spectrum of no big deal to Job is where your disappointment falls. You know what I mean? If I just told you my stories of disappointment and devastation, you might think, yes, but you're you know, just this punk guy up there and, and I've been through worse than you, but I tell you Job's story so that he's out here and all of us can just stack hands and say, we're here somewhere. And there's no yeah, buts. Yeah, but you don't know what I, no, 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 Job, <laughs> Right? And so as we talk about disappointment and devastation, we recognize we're all on this spectrum somewhere. Here's the next story. Jesus, this is New Testament. Jesus arrives. God, this God who's conversing with Job, shows up with skin on. And he does the human thing for a season, 30, 33 years-ish. And Part of his mission is not to live an easy life either. He's on his way to a brutal death on a cross on 
purpose. So if Job was like one of the most tortured men in the history of humanity, Jesus ups him one because he's God who's choosing this. And he's perfect, sinless, no mistakes, and yet he is brutally beaten, killed, broken on a cross, crucified in an unbelievably painful way for you and me, for the sins of the world. And that's what he elects to do for you and I. And so he dies on this cross and all of his followers are watching from a safe distance and they are disappointed. Their heart breaks a little bit for him, but at the same time, it's like, dang it. He was supposed to be the one to change everything. He was supposed to be the one to overthrow the Roman government and give us freedom. Oh, and by the way, a high-ranking place in his new kingdom. Now he's dead. And a couple of days after his death, some, some of the disciples are walking along and they see this guy who looks like a gardener. It happens to be Jesus, but they don't recognize him. And Jesus walks up and he asks them, what are you discussing as you guys walk along here? They stop short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, let's call him, replied saying, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened in the last few days. You must be the only one. This is all the buzz. Everyone's talking about it. And Jesus says, what things? The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles. And he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leaders and priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death. And they crucified him. But look at these three words. We had hoped. He was the Messiah who came to rescue us. We had hoped. Now we don't. We've slid the other direction. From disappointment to discouragement, to disillusionment, this can't be real, to depression, we're moping along, sadness written across our face, to despair, given up hope. Clearly, they had expectations of how Jesus was supposed to deliver them, of what he was supposed to do for them. God, you were supposed to fix this. Get us, get the Romans out of here. Give us power. You know anything like that? God, you were supposed to heal. God, you were supposed to provide this. Why would you allow this? How come you're letting it happen this way? Aren't you paying attention to me? You were supposed to. You should have. They were disappointed all the way to despair. They had given up hope. Instead of being the one to save them, they thought, sure looked like he was pretty dead. What they didn't realize was that it was Jesus himself they were speaking to. What they didn't realize is that resurrection after being dead is even cooler than never dying. They thought death was the end of the story. And it turns out it's just the beginning. And that Jesus' death and resurrection meant new life for everyone. 
And it wasn't about Rome and positions and power and money and, and what we do right. This is about eternal freedom and life for them, those disciples, and for all of humanity. That's what he was up to, just beyond what they could see and understand in the middle of their disappointment. Because death and disappointment is not the end. In fact, it's just the beginning. There are some things that need to die and be disappointing in our lives so that we can get to a new place of life that God intends for us. But here's the thing. This gets even a little bit more real. Our disappointment with circumstances, with people, even with God, ultimately, and for many of us, is really a disappointment with ourselves. If we're honest, if we're painfully honest, We're mad at them, we're mad at her, they did this, the situation is really terrible, but underneath it all, we're disappointed with us. And she might have left, but I did all of this, and I don't think I can forgive myself. And this might be happening this way, but I know me, and I've screwed this up, and I'm broken, and I'm a disaster. I'm disappointed with me. Why am I even dependent on this guy after all this time? I should be in another place by now. I should have achieved this. Why am I still waiting on that? I should be further. I should be smarter. I should be more successful. I should have learned by now. And our disappointment lingers with us because it's with us. John 21 the last little story I want to tell you, about the same time Jesus appeared to those disciples as they were walking. A short time later, he goes and appears to one of his best friends named Peter. Peter was one of his inner circle. Peter had been a fisherman called by Jesus, one of his disciples, one of his three kind of closest friend disciples. And Peter was the one, famously, who when Jesus is marching toward his death on the cross, Peter denies that he even knows him three times. People ask him, he says, don't know the guy. Never heard of him. You're crazy. And then Peter has to walk away from that, not only watching his friend die, but having to know that he didn't even acknowledge his existence. And it's not just his friend, as it would turn out. It really was the savior of the world, the God of the universe. And now Peter is that guy that denied him. And for 2,000 years, people have been talking about Peter. And that's embarrassing. It's kind of like the most embarrassing uh, sin to kind of to, to, to haunt you, right? Your entire journey. That's Peter. He lives with that. And so when you live with that, you're pretty embarrassed, you're pretty disappointed with you. And so what do you do when you're disappointed with circumstances, even with God, and then really ultimately with yourself? You go back to the only thing that you know. And for that, for Peter, that was fishing. So Peter goes back to fishing. Jesus pursues Peter. Peter sees him, runs toward him, swims toward him, runs toward him. They have breakfast together. And the whole time, Peter is so excited 
amazed, confused, like what's really happening here? You're alive and scared to death. Because if you died and resurrected, I'm banking on the fact that you know I denied that you even existed and that I knew you. And so he's sitting here having some fish and Jesus is starting to talk to him and he's really excited and scared at the same time. And Jesus asks him a profound question. This would be the question that would heal Peter's soul. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter stammers something like, yeah, yeah, of course, I, I love you. And then Jesus says, feed my sheep. In essence, I still have work for you. You're still with me. There's more for you. Here's what I want you to do. And he asks him again, Peter, do you love me? And Peter is panicking. Yeah, 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 I do, I do, I totally do. Waiting for the other shoe to drop. Do you love me really? Then how come, Right? A third time, Peter, do you love me? That was his last question. Not, how could you? Not, why weren't you stronger? Not, did you miss everything that I had been telling you for the past three years? Not that. Not, I'm so disappointed in you, Peter. No. He says, do you love me? Because I'm here right now looking you in the face because I love you. And really the question that I have for you, Peter, is will you trust me? Amid the disappointment, the devastation, and the disappointment in yourself, will you trust me? that you are loved, that I have more for you to do. Similar to the question that he's asked Job, amidst all this, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you trust, as Romans 8 says, that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. Friends, disappointment is not the enemy. You'll be disappointed. You'll be let down. But don't go down that path to despair. You can choose a different path. You can be honest about the pain, live in the pain, and yet turn it to hope. You can choose to believe that God is still good and have faith that he still has good for you and that can become hope in a better future and hope does not disappoint us. Regardless of the circumstances, you can know that God loves you. And he asks you, will you trust me in the middle of all of this stuff. I wanted to close our morning by, uh, by singing again and by singing in a way that is hopeful and thankful and willing to praise even though the circumstances might not be great in your life. Will you stand with me for a second? 
I want to invite you to read these verses from 1 Thessalonians on the screen. Let's read it out loud together. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Because even in disappointment, even in devastation, even in death, we can trust that God is good, that God has good for you, that God is with you, and that you never have to give up, no matter what.